Thank you for listening to this programme from the Forever Manchester Radio and Podcast Network. Forever Manchester is a charity that raises money to fund and support community activity across Greater Manchester. Check out forevermanchester.com to find out more. With me now is Dave Haslam, Manchester DJ, author, host, broadcaster and all sorts of things. And uh, a good starting point actually is we're actually in the very building that used to house the boardwalk back in the day, of which Dave was associated heavily. I think he ran a very successful club night called Yellow. We may get onto that in a little bit, but first, Dave Haslam, welcome. It's nice to be here. And it is very weird to be in the building that was once the boardwalk. Yeah. Because obviously, as you say... Uh, in fact, I think I was here the day the boardwalk opened, which was May 86. Um, and um, the last time I DJed here was a few months before it closed, which was 1999. So 13 years, not every week, but in the 90s every week. Okay. And obviously back then when you were in a club night, you're used to seeing a building with a doorman outside and uh, a queue of people if you're lucky uh, and the police keeping a watchful eye but it's all cleaned up around here now it has what was it like back in the day what are your memories of it the boardwalk Uh, well it was a family owned business uh, and I like that because I'm not really much of a corporate guy Uh, it meant you could sit down and talk to the owner and the owner was the manager and a guy called Colin Sinclair you know he used to be there so it was all very hands on uh, and I like that 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 was a good start to things Um, It was a great little venue. I mean, the other thing about it was it it was a venue for live music. It was a club space for DJs like myself. But also in the basement was a rehearsal room or several rehearsal rooms. And of course, notoriously, Oasis were among those who rehearsed there. But also James, Happy Mondays. So the building has a lot of history. But the great thing about those days was it kind of worked as a little ecosystem because if the bands were rehearsing and they needed somewhere to play, then they might get a gig. They wouldn't necessarily go straight into headlining, but they might get a support slot on stage. You know, and then and then the club nights brought in a, another kind of energy. So I think that was that was that was a really good. It was a kind of accidental sort of yeah ecosystem or laboratory, where, where especially I think bands. But although it was it was known as a club, I think the bands particularly uh, really benefited from the setup. So you basically rehearse in the cellar, yeah, and then cut the teeth to yeah. an audience. I mean that's what exactly what Oasis did. You know, if you look at the official discography of Oasis, you know I think quite a number of their first gigs were at the Boardwalk. Happy Mondays. Um, I used to hang out with the manager of Happy Mondays from right in the early days, a guy called Nathan McGough. And um, we put on the Happy Mondays here a couple of times as well. The only problem with things like them putting it on the Mondays was all their friends would be, want to be on the guest list. Right. So you, you, never, you never made any money. They were a very cost-effective <laughs> gig then. Not really, but the thing is you only had to take the equipment from downstairs to upstairs, so there was no hiring of vans or anything. So you gained in that way. Isn't that sort of the story of 24-hour party people as well, where Tony Wilson and uh, Factory gave them a load of money to go record the second album and they just spent all the money? They, they weren't great with money. In, in fact, in, in, um, in, in my book, uh, my memoir, which is uh, just out, uh, it's called Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, but I tell a story about... Happy Mondays who every time any of the band ran out of cash this is just for like a a little month or two they didn't really know how to access their money you know it was all kind of it was all a bit haphazard shall we say so they used to steal uh, mine and Nathan's fax machine well not them but their friends and they used to hold it to ransom so I'd get into the office in the morning and I'd phone Nathan and say there's no fax machine and and he'd say oh I'll see what I can do next thing I know I'd get a phone call someone's going to walk in with the fax machine 
uh, we found it in inverted commas it's uh, 25 quid for its uh, return so basically every week we were giving happy mondays 25 quid of their own money and having to go through this fiasco it was just bizarre but i think that that is something that i, I really i don't mind that in life or and definitely not in music you know when things are a little bit chaotic or bit rough around the edges you know when i dj sometimes I, you know i get good gigs you know like uh, a selfridges fashion show or something and i like doing them but i really look forward to the the chaotic ones you know when it's like four o'clock in the morning and no one really knows where they are or who they are and and the smoke machine's on and you know the strobe is on and i'm just putting on the loudest music i can and that chaos is really uh, something i'm a, kind of a little bit addicted to brilliant we're going to come back to music in a little bit I want to take you back pre-Manchester. Okay. So, you're not a Mancunian? No, well, I grew up in Birmingham, and I came here in uh, 1980 to be a student. Okay. So that's um, 38 long years ago. I, I guess I should say it seems like only yesterday, but it does seem like a lifetime ago. Yeah. At that point, I mean, I decided to come to Manchester because I loved the music. You know, the music brought me here, right. and... As a teenager in Birmingham, I was absolutely obsessed with music. And I'd go and see local bands, again, in small venues, just like I would now, really, like I, I've always done. You know, and, and I saw Dex's Midnight Runners at one of their first gigs and UB40 in a pub. And, uh, you know, Birmingham had a really good music scene at that time. I mean, nothing as legendary and, and mythical as, as the Manchester one. Right. But, you know, I remember hearing Joy Division in 1979 and uh, going to see them a couple of times that year and uh, I just wanted to be in the same city as them and The Fall and Buzzcocks you know and I got my A-level results and got the bus from Digbeth bus station to Chilton bus station and I mean I, I went obviously I've been home a bit but what happened in the years after that is quite soon after I, I came up here uh, my mother died and the family kind of all sort of went to different parts of the country really as a result of that so I didn't have a home back in in Birmingham and uh, so I've been in in Manchester ever since and what subject did you take at the uni I took well you know if if you read my books you can tell I'm a, I'm an English student okay. I know where the apostrophes go uh I, yeah I, I I went to Manchester uni I did English and I kind of lived uh, uh, I lived in a uh, hall of residence for one year and then I kind of lived in Longsight, Hugh, Mossside, Wally Range, all those kind of places, as students still do. Um, but I lived half my life in the library. I was very studious, you know. Uh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like a rock and roll guy who didn't really care about that. I kind of took it all seriously. I loved reading and studying English and so I spent all day in the library. But then every evening I would be out. And in fact, I've got my diaries. I've got kind of quite funny, very teenage, studenty type diaries. And I was looking at them when I was writing my book. And I was out every night. And, you know, I was finding stuff to do. And I was going to see local bands. And I was going to, there was a cinema in Hume called the Arban, which was like an art cinema. And before the corner house, you know, and in my diary, it's like I'm there and then I'm at on the eighth day having my chickpea stew because obviously I was being a student vegetarian. Chickpeas were all the rage. They were all, that's all, all, all us vegetarians would ever eat. And what was funny was before I lived here, I worshipped, as I say, Buzzcocks, The Fall, Joy Division, Tony Wilson. 
But what was lovely that once I'd started going out, I mean, I saw New Order kind of like the third week I was here or something. And actually the scene was really small and it, and it was also very welcoming. Yeah. So, you know, so, someone like there was no kind of resistance or kind of ethnic cleansing. You know, if you were into music, you know, you were very welcome. So I'd kind of see uh, Mark Smith and Marky Smith in, you know, having a drink or I'd see Pete Shelley in an alternative bookshop. And I kind of immediately kind of realised that although they were on one level, they were heroic people to me, you know, also they were very kind of down to earth and real and approachable. And I think that that was a real, really great quality of that scene. Okay, so you were a music lover who went to gigs as a as a punter to watch it and enjoy the music what's the transition from becoming just the watcher to being involved yeah i mean that's it that's the big question really i mean because lots of people love music you know lots of people go to gigs but then not everybody becomes as you say kind of a producer of all that or involved in all that but i think when i left uni I, i started a little fanzine writing about everything that was interested in not just music but mainly music and um through that i met even more people on the scene and I became aware of lots of bands who weren't getting that many gigs or needed a bit of a helping hand, and I'd write write about them in the fanzine. And then with a, f- a couple of friends, I got involved in putting on smaller bands, and not just Manchester bands, but also bands from other parts of Britain who needed a gig in Manchester right. and who weren't get, getting any off the established promoters. So we'd hire little venues and put on bands. And um, so I got, I just kind of got involved really just because I, I liked certain bands and I wanted to champion them and, I, and encourage them and give them an opportunity and become involved in things. So it was, my, I started out writing about them then putting on the gigs. And then the DJing came about because the, the little crew that I was involved with putting on um, little gigs in uh, places like The Man Alive, uh, we, we only book one act maybe a week right and um and then it would be like well we need to entertain the the customers who were coming in and paying 75p or whatever it was there weren't many customers yeah because the band's say. only going to be on for an hour yeah, if that if that so uh so i was desig- being being like the nerdy music loving guy i was designated you know it wasn't even really DJing. It was just like put the music on before the bands, put the music on after the bands. But I actually enjoyed that, and I, I didn't even have enough records. I used people used to lend me records to play, <laughs> and I remember the Man Alive particularly was a very small club with a small dance floor. But and that was actually quite good because it was easy to fill a small dance floor <laughs> with like ten people, and I you know and and I just played bits of everything, and I but I enjoyed it and. Um, and then we kind of graduated into doing occasionally just doing nights with me just DJing, and um, you know this is over thirty years ago now. But yeah. DJing on certain scenes, you know, I think like the Northern Soul scene, the reggae scene, uh, DJs were held in quite high esteem, right? And their names were known, and they'd go to like jazz funk all dayers and so on. But um, in my little scene, really, there weren't any big well-known DJs and no real role models. So, you know, among my friends, it wasn't like, oh, you're a DJ now, you know, and and I didn't have to jump through loads of kind of apprenticeships and, you know, like like 
kids now who want to be DJs, you know, who have to buy their own equipment and go on DJ courses and, and come up with, you know, like mix CDs and SoundCloud and MixCloud and yeah. Facebook. I didn't have to do all that. I just turned up with literally a cardboard box with some 12-inch records and a few 7-inch. And away we uh, go. Away we go. And I, I kind of feel like I, I was very lucky that that was the world of then because if it had been mega competitive, I probably would have just walked away from it, you know, and, 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 and if it had been a big deal, I might have thought that I wasn't able to, but I, I, it, it wasn't a big deal. So that, grew, you know, my DJing grew and I started then putting on my own parties, either DJing on my own or with other people. Right. And, and that's how I ended up doing the Hacienda because uh, I was doing a night at a club that was called The Venue uh, which was uh, just down the road from the Hacienda. Like the Hacienda, it's now a block of apartments, I think. Yeah. Um, and I was one of the first DJs to go in there. It had been a strip club before then. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, something like Peaches or Annabelle's or something. And um, so the first night, the doorman spent more time throwing out guys looking for the stripper than um, <laughs> dealing with any of my couple of dozen customers but you know we, we built I built that little night and it was because it was close to the Hacienda when they were looking for DJs they literally walked in one Friday night and and it happened to be you know it was a busy night and now were they, people looking they snaffled me from there were people looking for their own music or were they coming for your music or were, were they look were they bringing you stuff yeah well they were looking they were looking for uh, I think what I what I realized what I decided to do early on in my DJing was to just play what I loved and to be a little bit eclectic if I wanted to um, and also just not get too bothered about what other DJs were playing especially you know the more uh, the in the more mainstream clubs yeah. you know and um, I honestly you know it sounds like I'm being like a bit snobby but honestly I didn't really follow the charts for example I kind of listened to John Peel he was really influential and you know I read the music papers and I'd go into record shops like Piccadilly Records and then later Eastern Block and and they'd recommend stuff so my main thing was that I, I would just appeal to people who wanted maybe something a little bit different from the mainstream you know uh, and a nice mix of stuff so if you if it was was your 20th birthday or your 21st you could come down with you know a group of 10 mates and you know there'd be something not exactly something for everyone but there would be enough of a mix so that was always my my philosophy was to was to try and engage engage with everyone but find the best of lots of different things but most of all not to play what all the other djs was playing I read somewhere that your your fanzine and your early your early activities as a journalist led to writing for other for publications. Yeah, that was something that happened quite a lot. Really, it was an interesting time. Obviously, it was pre-digital, so all all the kind of music-loving nerdy kids like I was back then would probably now be doing blogs and and uh, you know websites of their own. But back then you'd do a fanzine and you'd take the fanzine around and you'd sell it at gigs or, you know, there might be a few record shops that would sell some for you. Um, but it, it was a kind of apprenticeship and the people in places like New Musical Express and Sounds and Melody Maker, there were three weekly music papers at, yeah. at, that, of that, yeah. at that time. I mean, there were others like Smash Hits as well and Record Mirror. Yeah. So there was loads of music magazines. And they would uh, they'd keep an eye on the fanzines. And, and if there was a fanzine that looked interesting to them, it was often a, a, a step into uh, writing for the proper magazines, which was kind of weird because you started a fanzine because you, didn't, you wanted to do your own thing. 
you know, and like you were rebellious. And you're like, there's nothing in it in the enemy or the face or record mirror for me. I'm going to do my own thing. But then, you know, if someone gives you the opportunity at NME, like they did, and they kind of called me up and said, why don't you start writing for us? You know, it, it, it for me as a kid who'd been reading the NME since I was probably 12 or 13. That was like that, a big deal. Was great. It was a big. That was a, that was a, that was a big deal. Yeah, that was definitely a big deal. That's super. Uh, it didn't really work out particularly well because back then it was also um, the media was very centralised in London. So if you weren't in the office in London, hanging out and having a drink, say with the editor and all that, all that, um, then you kind of missed out. Um, you know, and th- they would have people that, like me and other people. In maybe one or two people in every major city uh, but we just get the local stuff which was good because it meant I could interview like Happy Mondays and Stone Roses New Order I did all that but sometimes when you're in, really into music you also want to break out of that the local scene and that was also something that I've always believed in that that, that uh, as a music lover you don't judge music by the postcode that it was made in. I mean, it's great if people in your city are making great music and you champion that. But at the same time, you know, in, in, in the bigger picture is if there's something that turns you on that you hear, it doesn't really matter where it's from. And so as a journalist, I got a bit frustrated that I was only getting the work to write about local bands. Uh, it was a, like, a little bit of a pigeonhole, as if somebody living in Manchester wouldn't be able to write about New York hip hop. That you'd have to be a London journalist to do that, say. And that used to that used to get on my nerves. That's only a London journalist perception of it, though. It, yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, it was you know we'd we'd be playing hip hop and and house music, um, and like weird indie and industrial, all sorts of underground stuff, underground yeah. music basically yeah. in the hacienda and elsewhere in the mid eighties. You know, and we were playing that stuff before people in in the London magazines were writing about it. And the irony of that, of course, is that the bigger these bigger publications, your enemies, your melody makers, your sounds, they were actually being influenced by the very fanzines that you guys were writing locally. So you were actually supplying them with the fodder that they used as their national stories, but they wouldn't trust you to write nationally. That's right. And the thing is, that, yeah, because we were part of the grassroots, we were part of the underground, and it's kind of like a, you know, I guess, whatever, like a pyramid, you know, by the time it gets to the top, which is like, you know, yeah, the NME or the broadsheet newspapers, you know, it's gone through the grassroots, which is why, you know, I still now, if, uh, I mean, there's kind of, there's a bit of a weird thing in my book where I end up living in Paris for a few months. But while I'm in Paris, this is a few years, just a few years ago, like 2016, um, I spent my first week just lo- going to find the little indie venues. Right. <laughs> and, cool. and going cool. to find, like, the art house cinema. And because I was so used to to checking out you know the the new stuff and and the bands that were just making it and the bands that were being a bit different or the DJs that were kind of a bit out there because I'm I'm so used to doing that everywhere I go that's what where I, I now look and it's partly because I I, li- I like that it's very accessible but it's partly like you say that it's kind of where everything begins you know like every every band if you if you ask any band where did you begin they began playing in a little pub yeah. or in a little venue. And every DJ has to start somewhere, you know, a little cellar somewhere or a bar somewhere. So as someone who really loves the scene and loves music and that excitement, then those are the places I tend to go. So you are very much rooted in the grassroots. Yeah, I am, yeah. And because it, 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 it's kind of just where I feel comfortable, I think. That just about brings us to the end of part one of our chat with Dave Haslam. 
but there is much more in part two. If you enjoyed this episode of Forever Manchester Meets, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and like and subscribe us with a nice five-star review. If you want to find out more about Forever Manchester and the work that we do in Greater Manchester, please check us out at forevermanchester.com or follow us on the usual social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Forever Manchester. Nice one.